Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you want to know about the bishop and the actress, if you want to know how to be a star, if you want to know about the stains on the mattress, you can read it in the Sunday papers. This is the darkest period for a free press since massive propaganda and censorship during World War One. Fake news, rampant hearsay, unsubstantiated tweets, advertorials, complacency, disillusionment with mass media, plummeting ad revenue. Put it all together, and my guest today sees the greatest threat to freedom of the press in 100 years. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's, now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Manhattan, Professor Jay Rosen. He teaches journalism at NYU and blogs at PressThink.org. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm a big follower of yours, and I'm finally getting you on my show, sir. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Let's start off. And I've been I've been reading you over Twitter and at PressThink religiously recently. Um, I, I know it's a bit cliche and indulgent to go back into the Thanksgiving dinner family feud, but that's kind of the crossroads of American civilization right now, where red state and blue state come together and people from L.A. and Florida and Virginia, in my case, um, when everybody was pointing the finger at me, kind of you guys in the media, in the press, you know, really mm. screwed it up this year. One, what what are we? It's this amorphous, this blob, this I, I can't, you know, I can't kind of raise my hand and say, yes, I met with all of these uh, people, these massive conglomerate owned uh, magazines and, and CNN and whatnot. And we plotted screwing up this election. What do you define as the press and, and the media right now? Mm. Well, to me, those are two different things. Um the media is the business of aggregating attention and selling it in a marketplace. And it's very technology driven these days uh, and, of course, commercially based. So the way I think of it, the media is the attention business. The press is an institution that derives from the founding of the republic that is enshrined, of course, in the the First Amendment, and it's the tools by which people figure out what's going on and communicate to each other in a free society, in a, in a constitutional republic. And the press is much older than the media and has a stronger claim on the Constitution than the media business does. Um, but when people around their Thanksgiving tables rail at the media and spit in disgust at it. They mean something different. They they sort of mean the entire complex by which news comes to them. But even more abstractly, the media has become the thing we hate. <laughs> you know, it's become like a an, an object of abuse. Uh, and it was that for a long time, but um, Donald Trump, of course, perfected that. Mm. Uh, and so oftentimes when people complain about what the media did and didn't do, and then you ask them, well, what do you mean? They give you answers like somebody they saw on television last night or the latest op-ed that it angered them, or it's, it's whatever we hate uh, about the it's, news. It's Rorschach-like. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to avoid that 
because it's sort of a cliched image. But... I'm full of cliches, sir. Why don't you yeah. put that on me? We'll use <laughs> okay. we'll use Potemkin. We'll use Kabuki. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually I'm a little intimidated actually by interviewing you because your prose is so bereft of cliche and these things that let me be the dumping ground for stuff like that. So, uh, <laughs> but I want to actually, you know, if you take take an example of CNN, right? I grew up watching CNN yep. in the days of Ted Turner's vision and. Um, let's say Wolf Blitzer covering the first Iraq war. That was, to my mind, journalism. They get j- journalist credentials, press passes to the White House briefing mm-hmm. room. But CNN is owned by Time Warner, which has mm-hmm. HBO, which has the Sopranos library, which has Westworld, which has a film studio, which has all these cable networks and TBS and TNT. And that that business broadly is about entertainment consumption and and eyeballs and uh, aggregation and whatnot. And you look at Fox News. It's a whole other beast, but it's owned by, what is it, 21st Century Fox. And mm-hmm. CBS News is right owned by CBS, which makes a ton of money on its networks and on Showtime. And uh, NBC is owned by Cabletown, Comcast, which mm-hmm. also has a film studio and makes money off of cable and networks. So right. where is the separation, at least if we look at, at TV right now, where people, I think... Um, it's reasonable. It's reasonable to assume that until recently, you turn on the TV and you're going to get some modicum of of fact checking and news gathering, even out of a CNN, even in the in the in the age of kind of uh, you know airplane crashes and two hour special reports and clickbait. Right. Well, one thing I would urge you and listeners to do is is don't assume that these institutions are entirely coherent. Uh, they they may not be. So. Let's take the case of CNN, which is a very interesting uh, company and something I I, I think about a lot. There is a strand of CNN that is sort of pure journalism, and you pointed it out when you talked about um, the first Gulf War, which was definitely their coming out event uh, globally. Uh, And um, that was was sort of pure journalism in this sense. The origins of, of reporting, uh, the origins of authority in reporting are in a very simple statement that the correspondent can make, which is, I'm there, you're not, let me tell you about it. Mm-hmm. For hundreds of years, that's how reporters have um, established their right to be listened to. I'm on the scene. Sure. Here's what I saw, Right. And that's what you're talking about when when you refer back to the performance of CNN in the in the Gulf War, and that's still there in the culture. They are very much a news-driven culture. There's a lot of serious journalists who work there. They're very proud of their ability to go live with the news, um, but they're surrounded by this other thing, which is basically a content creating company that's comparable to other um, channels on the cable dial. Right. And Jeff Zucker, the current president of CNN, has, I think, understood it as a entertainment or content creating company that has an advantage over HBO or uh, A&E. Uh, or the History Channel, which is that the stuff that happens to create the programming is free because it's just events in the world, you know, like the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't have to pay the writers. You don't have to pay the actors because the political system or the news system provides them for free. And so there's a cost differential advantage. So if you look at it that way, CNN is like A&E that doesn't have to pay its writers, but in and, fairness to them, they have been staffing up. DC has been gangbusters for him. They've had a great year um, covering kind of the spectacle of the primary seasons. We're actually watching the debate was yep. lowbrow. Watching these debates, too many debates, actually, when they were winnowing down the field, it was it was a lowbrow circus. Like, you know, seeing the Donald uh, get needled by Ted Cruz and, and, and putting down Marco Rubio and making Jeb Bush look like he was in a vomit and then talking, you know, gesturing about his manhood. Um, that kind of stuff is where I, I you know, I, I was wondering if the control room people at CNN or the executives were cringing or if they were high-fiving because this guy was like media magnet gravy. Well, this is what I'm saying. It's, it's like it's both. It's, it's a news network that's constantly threatening to flip into an entertainment machine. Mm. And nobody can really control it uh, and it can turn on a dime 
and it can turn the news into a show like with the missing jetliner. Remember that? Sure. <laughs> which, which became like a miniseries, right? The search for the airplane. Um, and so this is the thing about CNN is that it, it has a partial identity as a news operation. And then it has this other identity that it's constantly flipping into, which is a content machine that uses the news to generate ratings. And everybody knows that about it. Uh, and we don't know which one it'll be at any given time. Sure. And you know the guys at Morning Joe, uh, which is not mm -hmm. hugely, hugely watched in terms of absolute or relative numbers, but it seems to have an audience of core influencers who like to get their fill of, of the usual panelists every morning, every weekday morning on MSNBC. They got a lot of flack for genuflecting before candidate Trump uh, when he was considered largely a, a punchline and not a serious candidate, but sticking with them throughout until late in the game. What, what have been your other observations, I think, of uh, Fox aside, which you know, is idiosyncratic unto itself, but what, what happened at the other TV news networks and this president-elect? Well, Morning Joe and Fox are, are both examples of a different kind of ha hybrid where they're one part news shows or news platforms, but in another sense, they're political operations. Uh, and I think this is the key to understanding both of those shows. Uh, Joe Scarborough certainly cares about ratings. He wants to make money for uh, MSNBC. He wants people to like his show. Uh, he also wants respect as a news person. But he is a figure within the Republican coalition. He wants to be a power broker. Hmm. He, he wants to leverage the fact that Donald Trump watches his show into political power, just as Roger Ailes wanted to leverage his hold on the conservative audience into a kingmaker role. That has very little to do with um, uh, corporate commerce and, and pure commercialism, uh, but a lot to do with uh, a kind of atavistic desire to build an empire and be a political uh, macher, as we'd say in Yiddish. Sure. So I'm Sephardic, uh, by the way, but I, I've heard uh, that too. Okay. <laughs> so so is, I think trying to reduce these things to one thing, like it's all for the ratings, um, or it's just a right wing, you know, propaganda machine, is a mistake. Is uh, they're they're hybrid creatures, or sometimes they're intention with them, themselves, or they're like three different things simultaneously, and they're drastically in incoherent. Anyway, that's the way I look at them. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, to close out TV, I don't understand. These these are not very material to their parent company's earnings, right? Uh, well, CNN makes about $600 million a year. Fox makes about a billion a year. So that is, that's significant money. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I wonder why uh, somebody like a Comcast, which lobbies so much in D.C., I mean, one of the top lobbyists in the country, would risk uh, that kind of alienation with a morning show that looks like a political arm. I mean, it, it, it might be a bit naive of me to ask, but uh, they got a, certainly a lot of flack, especially with that mic that was still on and live. And are you a true discriminating journalist? Are you going to blow holes in this guy's story? Or are you going to be a stenographer? And uh, that's actually the, the, the line that you straddle there. You're Calling mm -hmm. out a lot of journalism is not journalists, not just for timidity, but taking the path of least resistance, which is almost like the puff piece or, um, you know, taking the five bullets off the press release and not asking the questions that are going to rightfully, you know, make the candidate squirm. It's your it's your job to ask the invasive questions. It's your job to seek transparency. Right. Well, I, I understand what you're saying. It's like, why do these companies even have news divisions? Because they're such a risk. Um, I it think seems two, like a throwback at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two reasons to that. Reasons for that. One is, um, it gives you more power in Washington uh, because you are a news company that um, people watch. Uh, it gives Comcast power to be the owner of the Meet the Press franchise, for example, hmm. which isn't huge nationwide, but is very big in Washington. And the, the other thing is that news done well is a great producer of trust. And trust is something that these companies care about. It's, it's int intimately related to a broadcast brand. Uh, when NBC, for example, 
does the Olympics, which is enormously important franchise for them, the trust built up through the news division is also transferred to their Olympics coverage. Uh, and so even though it's hard to quantify, there is a rational reason why these companies do news. Uh, and that's why even Disney, right, never got rid of ABC, even though people thought they might. Right, it was an albatross for a while op operationally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when they bought Capital Cities, originally the Capital Cities owned a lot of newspapers. They did get rid of those, but they never got rid of ABC News. They could mm -hmm. have, but they didn't. Were you surprised, Jay, I mean, to shift to the, the print world to see that the New York Times saw – I guess anecdotally, an explosion of digital subscriber editions in the wake of, of Trump's election, that suddenly a bunch of people ostensibly who are horrified and blindsided are like, oh my gosh, I need to double down on actual granular, unadulterated, non-hydrogenated news. Ergo, I need to sign up at the NewYorkTimes.com. No, I wasn't surprised. Uh, it's happened before uh, for uh, more liberal-leaning publications, for example, during the age of George W. Bush. I thought the New York Times should have gone further. They should have said, yes, you should subscribe, but we're also creating a special investigative fund to watchdog President Trump. And if you want to contribute to that, here's how to do that. I think they should have gone further. It is a strange thing. You know, we've talked about it before. They are a relic in that it's the last truly kind of family, old school, you know, going back into the early 20th century owned pure play newspaper company. I mean, the Washington Post has since been bought out by Jeff Bezos, who's worth north of $60 billion. I mean, buying this for $250 million is not really material to him. Um, certainly, Rupert Murdoch has taken his lumps on the Wall Street Journal, which has had huge layoffs lately. Uh, the Financial Times got uh, bought out. Uh, we've seen many uh, regional newspapers and uh, hyper-regional newspapers and hyper-local papers go under. Gannett is struggling right now. Tronk, Tribune, whatever the heck it was. Maybe the LA Times will find a billionaire buyer. Maybe it won't. I really wonder about the New York Times right now because even with an explosion of digital subscriptions, is it anywhere close to kind of being able to run its newsroom and then commit, for example, more business journalists to covering this administration and the business dealings of this administration with the... Uh, you know, deteriorating revenues that it sees in its core print product right now. I mean, are you convinced that they're closer to an inflection point? Not totally convinced, but when they passed more than 50% digital revenue, that was a big moment. And the fact that they have this subscription model that is increasingly um, important to them and it's working is really important. It's not out of the woods yet, and it's most people who study it and look at it, think that it's going to have to settle somewhere with a much smaller newsroom than it has now. It has about a thousand journalists now. Um, but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, to use a cliche, uh, that they will make it. They're in a lot better shape than almost every other newspaper. It's provocative to ask, uh, but do you think the, the ruling family right now, the Salzburgers and their cousins and whatnot, and A.G. Salzburger, the you know, prodigal son stepping up. Do you think they're the right people to own it? Should they maybe sell and bring in a person who can afford to take a bigger near-term hit, like a Jeff Bezos? I mean, I've, I've noticed a vitality, a, a joie de vivre from the Washington Post over the past year, year and a half, uh, and mm -hmm. a willingness to, an ex, to, to experiment that I've never really seen on the Times under this, this storied family's ownership. Yeah, I think the Times should do the transition to the next generation now. But it's possible that they would be better off with a different kind of owner. It's also a big gamble. It could be a lot worse. Um, so I, I hesitate to give them advice on that. But I do think that they are a little slow. They, but they, they do know the challenge. And they, they, they have a lot of smart people there who, who understand how serious the need for reinvention is. Um, it's true what you say about the joie de vivre at the Washington Post after Jeff Bezos bought it. But By I the would, way, I don't even know if I use that correctly. I just occasionally like to throw uh, in a French phrase. Uh, yeah, it makes us sound smart. <laughs> it's um, a je ne sais quoi, Jay Rosen. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the, it, revert, it works the other way, too. I, I think that the, the Washington Post has had an effect on Bezos, and um, he has – seen the importance of the press in, in the life of the country. 
I think it started to accelerate when Washington Post reporter who had been held by Jason Rezaian, yeah, that he helped arrange with the plane and and he was there to receive him. It's not exactly he's a hands off owner, but not so hands off that he delegates this to Marty Bariner. Yeah, and I, and I think that episode of going to pick up his reporter really had an effect on on Bezos, uh, and then Trump's threats against the Washington Post kind of put him in the same situation that the Grams were in when they were being threatened by Nixon. Um, and I think it's made him a more serious person. And, and um, I think he bought the paper because he thought he could do some good for it um, and to sort of enlarge the sphere in which he could operate. But now he sees that his legacy as, uh, as a capitalist uh, could turn a lot on what he can accomplish with the Washington Post. And it helps when your core company with which, I mean, he has an unusual, uh, what is it called, reality distortion force field where Wall Street doesn't even really care about the core profitability at Amazon, which is one of the, I still think, one of the five most valuable companies in the United States right now. Yeah. He's worth north of $60 billion. So it's very, I mean, like Bloomberg, like a handful of people he can afford to take, uh, you know, on, on a small part of his portfolio, lower than, than market returns. <laughs> and yes. and I've, I, for one, find the Washington Post indispensable right now. I mean, I bought a login. I'm logging in. They've limited you, I think, to 10 articles a month. And um, they're playing Twitter really well. And I, I wonder if the Times is up to that. And I know this is a Manhattan-centric conversation, and we're always you know whipping the, the gray lady and whatnot. But especially now that in your columns you've been underscoring the importance of the likes of the New York Times to kind of double down on their reporting of this administration. Administration, which is, mm-hmm. which has blindsided really everybody in the press. Mm-hmm. Well, we need we need both. You know, I, I I do admire the Washington Post's aggressiveness, and I think they've done a an amazing job for the last year and a half. Um, and I'm a subscriber to both, and we, but we need both. Um, and and on that on that point, it, something that happened during the campaign is worth reviewing when the New York Times finally sort of got disgusted with how Trump was manipulating the press and decided to just call him a flat-out liar in the news pages. And Dean Bacay, the editor of The Times, reflected on that a couple of times. Um, and he said something really interesting uh, when he was reflecting on this, which is in 2004, when we had the Swift both Veterans for Truth... With John Kerry. ...trying to poison John Kerry's candidacy with essentially lies about his his biography. Um, Dean Beckett was at the Los Angeles Times as editor, managing editor, and he recalls how he and his reporter didn't know how to write the paragraph that said, this charge is false. And I think for a lot of people outside of journalism, that's a very bizarre statement. Like, how can it be that these educated people don't know how to write this is false. I mean, Why? Because it, of, let's say, Tribune's ownership that they'd have to deal with the bean counters in D.C. who are more conservative? and No, I don't think it had to do with the bean counters. I don't think it was a commercial thing. I think it was, it was in the culture of journalism at that time. You didn't make a statement that put you on this side or that side of a political dispute. You stood back from a political sure. dispute and you portrayed it. So – my point is that, that, okay, so Trump kind of like blasted that system to smithereens and finally the New York Times was able to say this is just a lie. But 2004 to 2016, 12 years to get to that point, it's just too long. Sure. We, we need faster change. We need, we need journalists who are able to update their traditions and routines like quickly, like overnight – because that's the situation we're in. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Professor Jay Rosen at NYU. He's been on the faculty there for 30 years, and you were yeah. chair of the department between 1999 and 2005. You also authored the book, What Are Journalists For?, and you've written for everyone from the New York Times to the LA Times, Salon, Harper's, and uh, The Nation. Have you appeared in an Olympics, sir? Uh, <laughs> you seem to have like... No. Maybe the Nerd Olympics. Have you ever played keyboard for New Order? Or have you ever toured with Belinda Carlisle? Anyway, no, no. Um, that's no. just the kind of Pick show. Pick up basketball. Pick up basketball is great. Um, I do want to get at uh, this criticism that you've had um, of the press. And we've talked about timidity and 
evidence-based versus accusation-driven reporting. Uh, that post on, on Storify uh, really blew up on, on Facebook. I mean, it was shared everywhere. I saw it and, and said, gosh, I got to get Jay on the show. Um, and I think, you know, if you could describe it for us that you sure. you picked up on something that was like an otherwise mundane misunderstanding, an article in USA Today that um, said that Trump supporters are targeting George Soros over protests. Um, there was an allegation it was heard somewhere, kind of nebulous sourcing that Soros is behind the protests that sprang up after the election that made Trump president-elect. And Apple News even ran with the headline, George Soros blamed for secretly funding Trump protests. It turns out anybody could have just tweeted this, could have just made it up, a tweet bot. Somebody could have printed out flyers and dumped them from the Empire State Building, and there was no more credible sourcing than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was kind of extraordinary. USA Today ran this story that said some people on the right, including the fringe right, the Alex Jones Infowars right, which is as far right as you can get, uh, have been saying that the protest that sprang up after Trump was elected in New York and L.A. and Baltimore and Washington, Chicago, other places were funded and kind of manipulated behind the scenes by George Soros, a, a billionaire who does fund progressive causes. And the thing that struck me about the USA Today's reporting is that there's not a single fact, not even one, that would lend evidence to this charge. It just seems to be something people said. And then other people said it. And then other people after that said it. And of course, they included the denials from Soros's foundation and his spokesperson that there's nothing to this. And then they just kind of left it there. And I felt that after a campaign in which the winner had floated baseless charges daily, including many about uh, the press, and with it being so clear that he was going to continue to do this, just accuse people of things and make up uh, charges like millions of votes were fake, uh, that simply presenting accusations is just not good enough. And so I uh, coined this distinction between evidence-based reporting and accusation-driven reporting. And I thought it was pretty clear what the difference was and also pretty clear that we can't afford this anymore. We're in a much more challenging situation. And I think what made that post go um, spread so quickly was that the USA Today editor engaged me on Twitter about it. Yeah, I can quote that right there. You, You pointed out her name is Laura Mondaro. You said, to her in Twitter on November 25th, what you didn't have is any evidence that there was something to these allegations, so your report was allegation-driven. She tweeted back, well, it seems worthwhile to look into allegations that have currency over readers, voters, and present the facts as we find them. And you wrote back, it seems more worthwhile to tell readers and voters that though some people are making allegations, we found no real evidence. And I think the fact that she couldn't grasp this distinction or wouldn't, I don't know if it's couldn't, but maybe it just wouldn't, uh, is what um, struck a lot of people. It's like in the show Westworld, I don't know if you watch it, where the the hosts are not allowed to shoot uh, the guests in the park. There's just something embedded in there. And I just, (laughs) I was thinking about that. And I, you know, you you wrote a a really powerful piece at the beginning of the month before the election results came in, speaking truth to audience power, if I can quote from this. Mm -hmm. Um, You wrote in the deck, something happened yesterday that has never happened to me in 30 years of writing press criticism. I want to tell you about it. This week, I published in The Guardian a column about a Florida newspaper that wrote an open letter to readers apologizing to them for news coverage that was too critical of Trump. The editors were under fire from angry subscribers, many of them conservative, white retirees who live in the area. My piece was critical. It concludes this way, quote, unable to think it through clearly, the editors surrendered their right to speak truth to power and sold out their colleagues in the national press, close quote. The next day, I sent the link to the Daily Commercial, the newspaper, using the public address for letters to the editor. I wanted them to know they had been written about. Quickly, I got a reply back. This is what it said. Tom McNiff, the executive editor of the Daily Commercial, wrote you, I saw your column, Mr. Rosen. I'm the editor who wrote the open letter. Your column was a well-reasoned, measured, and intellectually honest piece. I can't disagree. And then you wrote in your blog post, with these words, the editor was acknowledging, yep, we surrendered our right to speak truth to power and sold out our colleagues in the national 
press. Normally, a note like that would include the words just between us or please don't run this. Those words were absent. It's pretty chilling to read it. I mean, this intimidation, um, I'm not going to call people black shirts and, and whatnot. I mean, I was trying to think of an analogous situation. A bunch of people, I think during the swift boating coverage in 2004, were, were shouting down the press. They were it seems like um, uh, mainstream media outlets are always being leery of, 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 of being called uh, tools of the liberal elite and whatnot. And maybe they overcompensate and uh, hesitate in ways they shouldn't have with a candidate like Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a striking event. Um, the, the way I try to describe this is um, alongside the production of news and commentary – our mainstream journalists are continuously engaged in the reproduction of their own innocence. Mm. And what I mean by innocence is they have to constantly show us uh, we're not for this side of that. We don't have a dog in this fight. We aren't part of this coalition or that coalition. We're innocent of having any politics ourselves. And what can happen, of course, is that the need to broadcast or advertise your innocence can get in the way of telling people the truth, (laughs) leveling with them. And what's especially tricky about that problem is that anybody who has pledged themselves to a career in journalism would say, if we asked them, what is your number one value, the thing that's more important than anything else? And they would say, Telling the truth, you know, not being a propagandist, um, being accurate, telling it like it is. And in fact, this other agenda of showing how even handed and innocent you are can actually override telling the truth. And that is such a hard thing to accept about themselves that it gets buried in denial and defensiveness and ritual. And that's what I was writing about in that piece. And we also saw um, this kind of criticism uh, in July after the nominating convention when NPR, National Public Radio, you've been critical of them in that they would not call it plagiarism when Melania Trump's speech to the uh, Republican convention took passages from Michelle Obama. And this also uh, ensued with an argument back and forth with a political reporter at NPR, Sarah McCammon. I think Jay Rosen raises important issues for discussion, but I don't think every story can do everything. I take most of my cues from journalists who have years of experience covering politics, not academics. And there was a back and forth. Um, Someone else on Twitter said, you reported in tones and facts so, quote, neutral, the listener can sense no right or wrong of you from nowhere. And she wrote back, plagiarism has technical meaning that includes intent. I trust my audience to make up minds based on facts I lay out. Now, I step back from this, and I remember when we had to sign an honor code freshman year in college or um, you know, a, a, a book of guidelines, whatever magazine you go to, that plagiarism is, is plagiarism. Nobody ever kind of backed out intent for me. I mean, if you do it inadvertently, um, you have to know that this is one of the cardinal sins, and it's something that you could call out. It's it, it, it's right there. Like, you can't be a little pregnant. You, you, mm-hmm. you either are. It's binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was striking, though, is how national public radio – in its standards, kind of has this this much, much, much tougher bar to, to, to cross for actually using the term plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's striking. That seems so hair-splitting. Is, is really a word like plagiarism so damning, so nuclear that I guess the most trusted, you know, radio body in the country, something that, that has a kind of a public trust to it, is also afraid to use it? Well, that's why I called my piece I subtitled The Culture of Timidity at NPR. I mean, how risky is it really to use the word plagiarism for what happened with that speech? You don't have to call Melania Trump a plagiarist. You could just say the speech was an act of plagiarism, which in fact, many other news organizations of equal stature to NPR did. So why was it so important for NPR to send around a memo to its reporters and producers saying, we don't use the word plagiarism, folks. Why would they do that? The only possible reason was to avoid criticism for being too anti-Trump. And that's not what we need from our big news organ- national news organizations. And it's curious to me that when this reporter 
tried to defend herself, she <laughs> tried to position me as the academic who's sort of out of touch with the way practice really works in journalism, which is a normal thing for me. That happens 20 times a week. Um, but in, in this case, her peers actually weren't going there at all. Everybody was willing to call it plagiarism, except NPR. And that kind of timidity is striking for national public radio or what used to be called national public radio. What about national public radio today? If you unpack the description to mid, you know, to talk about timidity broadly, right? This is a, this is a huge organization, a massively trusted organization. Disclosure, I'm on NPR One. I'm an independent show that's carried on NPR One. I've done a lot of uh, work for them over the past 10 years. Uh, when I was at Business Week, I love them. I want to see them succeed. I uh, have many friends at NPR. But this is uh, a massive organization that has had several CEOs over the past decade and maybe an instance of, of uh, a couple of rounds of PTSD. You saw how Vivian Schiller, their respected CEO, lost her job over a stunt that I think a Republican, a right-wing activist, put out to make them look like they were going to take money from uh, an anti-Israel organization. Uh, you saw mm -hmm. Gary Nell come out in October of 2011. Uh, the new CEO, he's now the former CEO, said he wanted to, quote, depoliticize the debate over the future of public radio. Um, it's not about liberal or conservative. It's about fairness. We've got to make the case we're delivering a fair service, not only in the way we do our jobs, but in the way we disseminate the news. Um, and he said that he wanted to retell the NPR story so that Congress would see why it deserved taxpayer support. Uh, I don't understand why something like that still, and I don't know if the two are connected, leads to a timidity where you can't use the word plagiarism. I mean, my ninth grade English teacher would use plagiarism. My, mm -hmm. you know, editors at the Wall Street Journal who are, who are staunchly conservative will use plagiarism. You see it. It's, it's demonstrable. You just had to put Melania's speech side by side to Michelle Obama's. What about NPR more broadly kind of walking on eggshells right now? It's still an era of disruption for them. They do count on a portion of their uh, budget and the money that comes in, obviously from member station support, but also from government matching funds. And these are always in the crosshairs of candidates running that we want to take that all away from NPR and PBS. How does this play out today? Well, I think NPR saw a long time ago that it should have gotten completely off of federal subsidy. Mm. And for whatever reasons, leadership board were not able to do that. The fear of losing that 10%, 5%, whatever it is, of government support is um, now baked into the culture of timidity in the organization. Mm. People who work there don't want to face that, so they describe it as something else. They describe it as fairness. They describe it as uh, reaching everyone. And they are correct that NPR needs to have friends and supporters across the political spectrum. There's nothing wrong with that perception. However, it gets in the way of another fact, which is it really has enemies on the right side of the political spectrum. Mm. They, they are the people who want to destroy NPR. And when you pretend that this is uh, just a matter of sort of listening to both sides and and being fair to all points of view. And that's how you describe a cultural war in which you are a object to be destroyed. You're going to fuzz up a lot of situations and you're and and it's hard to navigate clearly. So I think I'm a NPR supporter myself. I'm a member of WNYC. I uh, listen to them regularly, although I have not been able to listen to NPR since the election. I have not turned on my radio since the election. Um, but and I want them to be strong. We, I, I feel we need a strong organization like that. But the problems are both cultural in the sense of a cultural timidity. They're also structural in that the board is dominated by the local stations. The local stations increasingly um, don't have the place in the media ecosystem they once had, and they're trying to preserve that, and this leads to a lot of awkward, strange decisions. Prof, tell me more about that, actually, the local stations right now, because this is existential for them. On the one hand, you have this enormous explosion in, in uh, interest in content and podcasting. On the other hand, you take me, for example. I left New York 
uh, four years ago and I moved to Central Virginia. And if I wanted to have my own show, time was I'd have to kiss the ring of the local public radio station and, and mm-hmm. you know, work work the system, be there as a, as a night owl host and as an assistant and a producer, and maybe somebody might give me my big break. But I just went out and started it on, on my own. Um, you know, iTunes picked it up. There was SoundCloud. A lot of things changed technologically, like Bluetooth in the car, uh, the ubiquity of the smartphone and, and data plans that, you know, audio didn't use that much of the data plans. NPR is still, like you said, beholden to member stations and that old, you know, centuries-old infrastructure of of tower and repeaters and pledge drives and AMFMs. And I guess I was spoiled when I lived in Manhattan to have something as robust and as out there as as WNYC, which has also had its own critics. I moved down here to Central Virginia. Uh, you know, the congressman here is. Uh, David Bratt is a big supporter of Donald Trump. He's a Tea Party activist. Oh, yeah. The, the main NPR station here plays classical music most of the day, which is the path mm-hmm. of least resistance, right? You're not mm-hmm. going to offend anyone between Morning Edition and All Things Considered just playing classical music. Mm-hmm. And I wonder uh, when, you, when you link that back to the mothership in D.C., which is still overwhelmingly, well, you can't send us a check. Just support your local member station. If right. that's an anachronistic way of thinking, then that extends into this timidity of, of we don't even want to call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the problems are well known within the NPR system. Um, the board is made up primarily of people from the member stations. The member stations at one time were the only way that you could hear NPR. They are also very effective fundraising machines. So the money is donated to the local stations. The local stations then pass that along to fund uh, NPR. And um, it's just a case of institutional inertia. It's like everybody can see that that system is wearing away because the internet can now deliver so much content because there's going to be internet equipped automobiles. There already are. Um, because the a monopoly on the NPR programming doesn't really make sense anymore. Um, but uh, institutions change slowly. And so the, the culture of public broadcasting on you know, radio is caught in between worlds. And they're trying to adapt. They're trying to get with the podcasting revolution. But much of the energy is in podcasting is outside of NPR now for this reason. Well, there is an analogy to uh, kind of hugging your core print franchise. You look at us at Business Week, and while you knew that all of this was evaporating over the past 10 years and that you had to switch to digital, there was no easy way to monetize digital, that that remains mm-hmm. vexingly difficult across all of journalism, right? You could talk the talk, but in the end, you're losing $10 bills for you know 50 cents for nickels. I don't know what the old Joe Nocera analogy was. And how do you how do you get an organization that huge also which is being pressured to to disassociate from you know federal funding how do you get them to kind of make this innovative leap of faith i mean what i'm doing right here with you jay right now is a labor of love and i love doing this and i love that it's um there aren't middlemen in this and that it can be organic. It's mm-hmm. like you and I having a Skype conversation and I don't have to run it through several editors and, and have right. this email chain. And I'm able to do that now technologically. And the barriers to entry, I mean, setting up something with a MacBook or two Blue Yetis. How in the world is an organization this big? And I think to your point, as as critically important to, to journalism and the state of reporting in the United States, going to make that transition? I think it's an unsolved problem. I, I, uh, it's, it's hard to put it that way because it sounds kind of bleak, but this has been the number one problem in journalism for at least 10 years, and it remains unsolved. Maybe a good way to think of it is the era in which we had large media audiences and very few channels for reaching them, so that if you had one of those channels, you owned something enormously valuable and it was easy to make money off it and therefore fund your newsroom, we should see that as a, as a pause, as a parenthesis, as an unusual mm. era that lasted an amazingly long time, uh, you know, f- 60 to 100 years, and that it's not going to be that way again, and it wasn't that way before. And so uh, it's taken a while to understand that, but... It, it's not like there's going to come along a new magic business model to replace the one that the internet broke. It doesn't work that way. It's going to be a struggle to fund every single newsroom job 
from here on. And, and the, the answer to your question of how do you change an institution like that is, is really hard, but it takes, it takes leadership, the old cliche, uh, and it takes empowering people from below. And it's not that people at NPR don't understand this. They know everything we're talking about. They're not in denial. It's just really hard to make cultural change, especially when you're afraid. Has anyone done it? I mean, in the landscape broadly across all media, if we take TV, radio, print, has anybody successfully been paid for their content making skills as opposed to being a loss leader, as opposed to being having to be subsidized by a billionaire, by a Mike Bloomberg, anyone? I mean, I think the examples out there, maybe there's Netflix and, and HBO. That's not journalism. I mean, in terms of willingness to pay, if the press hasn't been asking people, I think, for, for centuries to actually pay because there was a wholesome cross-subsidy and full-page print advertising or a monopoly of airwaves. I haven't seen an example yet. Um, there have been some. They're mostly in the specialized newsletter category. Like uh, there's a startup in San Francisco called The Information, uh, which Jessica Lessons. Jessica, Jessica Lessons. Lesson. So she's, she's doing it. She's supporting herself with a very expensive uh, subscription product. Uh, Politico did the same thing with their um, paid newsletters. The thing about those kinds of companies, though, is that they're explicitly not in the business of informing the public. They're informing uh, a group of people who can afford to pay a lot for very high-quality information. And one of the things that they're getting and explicitly want in that bargain is that the information does not circulate publicly. Sure. Because that makes it more valuable for them. As it is so, with as it is with Bloomberg, which notoriously yeah, gets paid right. twenty or twenty two thousand dollars a year for its terminals. Right. Um, but then again, you know, I was I was there. They acquired my magazine Business Week and I stayed on for another uh, uh, four years or so. Um, I was never really impressed that people were paying for the journalism at Bloomberg. It was one of those things where you were paying to be in the network. It was the network effects of the terminal, mm-hmm. the ability to ping other bond traders. And and you're not anyone if you don't have a Bloomberg terminal, if you're in the hedge fund or investment management business. But mm-hmm. the, the journalism was almost like the requisite sprig of parsley that you had to have on the plate of dinner. Yeah. Um, I think the best way to look at it is that uh, serious journalism has always been subsidized by something. And the subsidy systems come and go and they erode and new ones uh, have to emerge to replace them. And we're in a period now where we're searching for them. Uh, another organization to take a look at would be Texas Tribune, mm-hmm. nonprofit public service journalism for the state of Texas. And I think they've been very inventive in figuring out different revenue streams that work for them, everything from events to memberships to fundraising of the traditional variety that NPR might engage in. Uh, and they've managed to keep growing and keep expanding. So they're, it's not that it's impossible. It's, the, it's that each solution isn't necessarily going to scale. And so you have to keep solving the problem again and again. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to NYU journalism professor Jay Rosen. He blogs at PressThink.org. He's prolifically published, um, constantly in the trenches, hearing what his his students, his millennial and, and Gen Y, Gen X students are saying. Speaking of which, um, what about court cutting? What about this uh, prevailing attitude? I mean, I've lectured at you know, first-year college students, and people just don't subscribe to cable anymore. They are devoutly a la carte about, I'm going to give this much money to Spotify. I'm going to give this much money to um, – you know, if I have a subscription, a special subscription to YouTube or Hulu or, uh, you know, Netflix obviously is required. What are you hearing on the ground from your students that's that's opening even your eyes? I don't think I know any young people in that category who are um, print newspaper subscribers, cable subscribers, or for that matter, landline owners. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just don't do it. Um, it seems kind of strange to them. Uh, and uh, I think the cable industry is after many years of rumors that this would happen there with the downturn in ratings for both the Olympics and the NFL, they're finally coming to realize that this day is here. And so you're seeing that with things like the skinny bundle or AT&T direct TV mm-hmm. coming out and offering yeah. kind of teaser plans. The streaming revolution is finally happening and, uh, it's going to be messy. It's going to be underhanded in many ways. Um, it's going to be dangerous, 
because there's major money involved. You know, the whole telecommunications industry is so much huger than news. Mm. You know, and entertainment dwarfs. You know, news journalism, or, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, we can expect a lot of blood, a lot of trickery, a, a lot of lobbying. You know, just the usual mess. Well, what happens? I mean, we've you, you've you've read obviously David Carr on the golden age of content, and we've we're you're now able to avail yourself of unbelievable series on cable and and almost agnostic to the channel. You can go to FX, you can go to BBC America, maybe the Discovery Channel or D1 wants to do something. It would stand to reason that all that stuff would dry up if you can't take for granted uh you know the longevity of a 130 150 dollar a month cable package. Yeah, I don't know. Uh there's no question that for an individual user of uh entertainment uh the choices are better than ever and it is sort of a golden age. Um, uh, I, I think the whole cable universe is being held together by ESPN. So I would, I would sort of watch what happens with that company. Kind of as the and, indicator species for everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the linchpin of the pricing model as well, because the reason the cable package costs so much is because of the costs, uh, associated with ESPN and live sports. But if that starts to decline, as a revenue generator because the viewership declines, then the whole thing starts to unravel. And it, it could unravel anyway just through the erosion uh, by young people who are not becoming cable subscribers. And I don't, I, I don't think that as they get older that they will. So um, it's, it, it, this is the way the media business is going to be, I think, permanently. It's not like you have calm periods and then whitewater. It's permanent whitewater. Hmm. Have you seen any evidence from the students that to the extent they're not going to blow $100, $130 a month on a Comcast or Cablevision or Charter package that they'd be willing to earmark a few bucks a month to good journalism, uh, especially in a more skeptical age or if they're skeptical of the administration? Uh, I wonder if, if there is a willingness to pay uh, in a generation that has never known anything but free articles mm -hmm. online. I think we have to find out. Um, there is in other countries like Holland, they pay for news. Um, and I think we have to go forward with that hypothesis that there, that there will be. But what people won't pay for is news without a voice. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, journalism. Uh, I'm sorry, but we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I don't think people are going to pay for that. And so the connection between the journalists and the good they're doing and the users and what they need done has to be much stronger for any pay model to succeed. Hmm. Well, in the few minutes we have left, Jay Rosen, close us out. Tell us open-endedly what what's on your radar, what has you concerned. I mean, I, I did say at the very top that you're seeing the greatest threat to freedom of the press since World War I, uh, and the state of political journalism really worries you with uh, maybe you know a couple of months left of the inauguration. Yeah, I think this is the darkest period for free press since massive propaganda and censorship during World War I. Uh, and the reason I say that is not just that there's a faltering business model in uh, the press and cutbacks in newsrooms like um, the ones that you've worked in, but um, much more serious than that, there's massive mistrust of the institution of journalism. There's a hostile person in the White House with great power who um, has in part won his position through uh, projecting hatred at the news media. And there's also this um, very strange development, which I call verification in reverse, where uh, verification is taking things that might be true and nailing it down. Verification in reverse is taking things that have been nailed down, introducing doubt about them, which releases a lot of energy and controversy and furor, and then fueling a political movement through that energy. And that method has been very successful on the right wing. And so now we have this, not, not just the alt-right, I don't think that's so important or new, but this alt-reality movement, which in many ways is is a refutation of journalism. And you put all that together uh, and it's, it's a pretty 
disturbing picture, and I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think we have to spend a lot more time thinking about how all these problems fit together before we know what to do about them. And certainly, I mean, there's no shortage of content. It's it's like sipping from a fire hydrant. Pretty much anybody can become a Forbes contributor now. I know they've taken knocks for that, but that used to be an imprimatur of, well, we've done our fact-checking on this, but now you really have to read the fine print. And it's not just like a an old LA Times advertorial. Right now, there are legitimately times where I click on something on a page and I have to squint to, to make sure, gosh, is there an agenda? Is there a commercial agenda behind this? Is somebody paying this as kind of uh, native content or some of the euphemism that they use for it? So it's a real parlous time. And at the same time, we see companies like Tronk, the old Tribune Publishing, and, and Gannett withering. And you've had this exchange with the people at Gannett and USA Today that uh, we don't have to you know, keep these standards. I just have to report what's what's out there in the ether. And what is the ether? If it's Twitter... I know it gets into inside baseball, Prof, but uh, it is uh, certainly a, a treacherous time. And I also think about colleagues in the press who've been beleaguered now for 15 years of people haven't been employed very gainfully. Mm-hmm. They're losing editors and backers left and right. No one is really incenting them to go out and get the uncomfortable uh, empirical results. It's really what are my traffic targets? Uh, I, I just want to live to see another day. If I have a pitch meeting in the morning just saying that there's this – perception that George Soros, for example, may have done something is enough grist to get your editor to, to greenlight a, an 800-word piece that will get, after all, tons of clicks back to USA Today. Yeah, it's a dark picture. I mean, for, for the, from the producer's point of view, it's not just how do we get the means to publish and do our work and put it out there, but then you have a second struggle after that, which is how do you be heard? How do you get heard over the din of all the other quote-unquote content out there. Uh, and if you have to resort to clickbait uh, or old-fashioned sensationalism um, just to get a little piece of mind share, then that erodes trust. And without trust, then any hard-hitting or serious journalism you might do will, won't be even received or listened to. And so... That's why I say it's the darkest time for serious journalism since World War One, because it's not just getting the story and printing it. You face a whole other struggle after that point. <laughs> right, close us out, hopefully. If your students come to you at the beginning of the year, they're all these bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, what, 18-year-olds and maybe 25-year-olds on a graduate level. Why the heck go to journalism school right now if, if commercially the gains aren't there? You have to be a true believer. And the knock also is that you have to come from a certain class of, of you know, economically that can tolerate low wages out of college and to take on an enormous amount of debt. You really have to be mission-driven and, and have a strong gut and, and pain threshold to do this. True. I think one of the reasons that they are motivated to to do it is that as a young person, you can have an effect much earlier in your career than you could when you started. Uh, and the fact is the news industry needs these people. It needs the people who graduate from my program, which is focused on innovation in journalism, and they tend to do very well. Most of them do have jobs. Um, and I, I think the other factor for them is um, – they're not, they know they're not the only ones who want to live in the actual present, not a fantasy world. And I think this is where optimism has to start, is you have to believe, I have to believe, that there are enough Americans who want to know what is actually going on in their country. I don't think that is dead. There's a lot of things aligned against it, but... Um, ultimately, uh, it is a faith in your fellow citizens, your peers, that people want to know what is actually going on, not what someone said, not what the propaganda machine pumped out, not what the entertainment complex has given us instead, but what is actually happening. And if we don't want to know what is actually going on in our country, then um, America's days as democracy are numbered. And that could happen. So it's high stakes and legacy time. Professor Jay Rosen, joining us from New York. 
journalism prof extraordinaire at NYU. He's been there for the better part of 30 years and blogs at PressThink.org. Thank you, sir, so much. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And you know what? Holler if you'd like to sponsor. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.